Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we are ending our discussion of Mockingjay, or at least the chapter-by-chapter read-through. Yeah, we'll still have a final episode like we have for all of the other books where we discuss Mockingjay as well as the entirety of the trilogy now that we've come to the end. Mm -hmm. But this week, our focus is going to be on chapter 27 and the epilogue. So can you give us a recap of what happens in these final chapters? After Katniss kills Coin, Snow cackles while coughing up blood. Katniss tries to take her Nightlock poison capsule, but Peta stops her, and she's dragged away to be confined in her old training center room. She resolves to kill herself slowly by starvation and morphling, but after a few weeks, Hamish shows up and announces her trial is over. On the flight back to District 12, Plutarch explains how Paler was voted in as president and Katniss is sentenced to return to District 12 and do therapy over the phone with Dr. Aurelius. Hamish is supposed to look after Katniss since her mom won't be returning, but he doesn't. Luckily, Greasy Say comes over to cook and wash up twice a day for several weeks as Katniss doesn't leave the couch. One day, she wakes to Peter digging holes to plant primrose bushes along the house. Katniss begins to take care of herself again, and after crying with Buttercup over the loss of Prim, she is able to talk with her mom and Dr. Aurelius. She, Peter, and Hamish then work on a book to remember the beautiful details of the dead. As people return to District 12, the mines are replaced with a factory to produce medicines, and Katniss realizes that Peter's promise of hope is always what she would have needed to survive. So when he asks, you love me, real or not real, she says real. In the epilogue, Katniss watches her two kids play in the meadow and thinks about how difficult it will be to explain to them about her experiences in the games and the war. The book ends with her thinking about how on bad mornings she lists every act of kindness she's seen. Even though it's tedious after 20 years, there are much worse games to play. And that's that's it. That's that. Yeah. End of episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we've got plenty to talk about. So let's get into our striking moments. What moments from this read-through st- stood out for you? I thought it was really interesting how before she tries to take the Nightlock pill, she thinks about having to say goodbye to her loved ones yet again if Mm. she's going to be executed and thinking of her mom like having to say goodbye to her mom and now every single person in her family would be dead that decides it for her that like no i can't do this i can't handle that and i'm going to just try to kill myself right now yeah especially because as she mentioned it's handling it again. Exactly. Because she's already said her what could have very well been her final goodbyes to them mm-hmm. in the past. And so she understands how difficult those conversations have been. And needing to do that again after all that's happened is just too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that that was a really good callback to the first book and how some of these things that she's experiencing, even though they're in a different way, are sort of repeating themselves and it's Mm -hmm. just it's too much which is understandable yeah i also really like how when she's in the training center confined there 
they've taken everything away that she could possibly use to kill herself. The fact that they put her in this room, Mm -hmm. which is not great, I'm sure, for her mental health. One, it's like solitary confinement, which is a terrible idea. But two, it's like this place where she's been two different times awaiting violence and potential death. Yet, it's also for for them, in certain ways, a smart way to go because there's surveillance already set up there and it's almost impossible for her to kill herself and then they've taken away even the very small amounts of things like fabric that, that she could use. And that was obviously purposeful on the Capitol's part for all of these tributes so that they couldn't do the same. And so it's like, there's this practical aspect, but like this horrible aspect that I think is really interesting and that she thinks taking my life is the capital's privilege again, which is just like such a great example that she thinks the capital and the new government are basically the same. Yeah. Because she calls them the capital mm-hmm. again, you know. And once she realizes, oh, maybe they're not going to execute me, she's super worried about if they're going to use her and force her to train or brainwash her or make her up and parade her out, you know, whatever it could be. Which is also, yeah, completely understandable. Why would you expect anything different considering what you found out about the new government before you killed Coin, and seeing the treatment of people in District 13, like her prep team, and yeah, just the fact that whoever these colleagues were all, you know, they didn't just unanimously say, no, we're not going to have another Hunger Games. Let's think of another idea, you know? And so I think it, it makes it be her desire to die, not just be about her sorrow over her sister, even though that's a part of it for sure. But it's also about the hopelessness of nothing is different, nothing will ever be different, and I can't go through this yet again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was also struck when she calls out to Gail to try and kill her mm-hmm. as she's being taken away, because, yeah, it's the same as if the Capitol took them in their infiltration mission, where she imagines that that's going to end in her torture, and that mm-hmm. she'd rather be dead than experience whatever they have in store for her. It's really clear, I think, here that she sees them as, yeah, exactly as bad, like you said. And and I can understand why. I mean, when I saw her in the training room and thought through that process, for me, I was like, oh, I bet Plutarch made the decision to send her into her training room. Mm. Because it is that kind of, oh, this will, she'll be comfortable. It's a place that she's familiar with. Mm-hmm. She, she'll have certain comforts that other prisons won't have for her. Mm-hmm. But also it comes with, yeah, the cruelty that Plutarch is still okay with. Yeah. The fact that nobody communicated anything to her. I'm sure that they have some sort of intercom system. Like there's something that they could have done. Or they could have just, you know, had her be in one of, like an apartment and, you know, confined there with Hamish or, you know, whatever. Like, what are you doing? There are other ways to handle this. She wasn't even present for her trial. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're still bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If in Mockingjay Part 1, the movie, she could video call Snow right into his home <laughs> from District 13, I'm sure they could get some sort of intercom system set up, at least pass notes, do some email, something uh, yeah. that lets her find out what's going on. <laughs> Beanie could figure it out. Let's her know that she's on trial. Yeah, maybe they thought, oh, that would stress her out knowing that she's on trial. But you know what would stress her out? Knowing nothing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the last two things I was thinking about in the striking moments, one was just when she's back in District 12 and she's walking to go into the woods and she sees all of these people excavating remains of people who died in the bombings. And she thinks, all through the seam, it's the same, the reaping of the dead. Oh, yes. Which is just, ugh, just such good writing. Yeah. <laughs> it shows that it's it's not just the reaping that she and all of these generations before her for 75 years had to experience, but the lives also that the capital took. And, I mean, it also highlights the utility of that word initially for mm -hmm. the reaping that happens for the Hunger Games. Uh, you know, already tying food and hunger into one another. We're reaping these children to be hungry or because of hunger. Or, you know, there's all these kinds of very, very purposeful language here, and it already starts that objectification, that dehumanization, and certainly the bombing of District 12 was a further example of that. Mm -hmm. And all of these people who had survived reapings in the past mm -hmm. were still killed yeah. because only, what, 10% survived, so ah, good wording mm -hmm. and then the last thing I was thinking about is that it's after weeping with Buttercup and Buttercup being there for her mm -hmm. is so sweet, which cats can do like, some cats are very intuitive and try to comfort you when you're crying and things like that and are like concerned about you mm -hmm. and it was after that that she was able to talk with her mom and weep with her as well and she was able to engage in therapy like she hadn't been prior and that was a particularly interesting this read through because I had seen some post in the past, I think on Reddit, where somebody was talking about kind of Buttercup and Katniss mirroring each other. Mm. And so it was just really interesting because if we think about it, like Buttercup is hissing at her a lot and like hissing isn't an aggressive things in cats. It's a warning things in cats. Like don't come any closer or I will attack you. Stay away, which is very much how Katniss was. Yeah. <laughs> And with most people, until she got, you know, despite herself, into some deep connections with people. And those deep connections really affected her. Just mm -hmm. like the deep connection Buttercup had with Prim really affected Buttercup. Then earlier in Mockingjay, with that quote-unquote crazy cat game, that's when Katniss realizes what Snow's doing to her with PETA. And both of them are these survivors. Mm -hmm. uh, Buttercup was 
attempted to be killed by Katniss Mm -hmm. early in in Buttercup's life, but didn't. And Buttercup makes it through bombings of District 13, through the bombing of District 12, Mm -hmm. all the way back from District 13 to District 12. And just has survived all of this and has these wounds and scars and stuff from that process, just like Katniss does. And then, like, they're both mourning. Um, So, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting because I hadn't thought about that before. But then after reading that and then seeing this really moving moment between them two at the end of this book and it being it helping a turning point for Katniss I thought was yeah really interesting yeah yeah absolutely and I think that that mirroring that you mentioned is also interesting because Buttercup then is there for Katniss Mm -hmm. and one of the things that Katniss really becomes defined by is being there for people who are hurting Mm -hmm. being there for people who are dying and uh yeah, I think that that's a really interesting relationship to to focus on. Yeah, and I think it's it's really significant because throughout the books, we really hardly ever see Katniss actually grieve. Mm-hmm. Because either she's on camera like with Rue or she's just trying not to think about the horrors once she returns from her games or because she's just focusing on the next thing she has to do to survive. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't always had the space and time to do so. And times that she has, she hasn't wanted to because it's just so painful. And so... I mean, even here, it's months afterwards mm-hmm. until she finally gets to a place where she's able to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think her being able to grieve... But not just on her own, but with the presence of another, even if it's not another human quite yet, uh, I think helps yeah, open that door for her to be able to do it in front of other humans. Absolutely. But what about you? What are your striking moments? Yeah, I was also really struck by the reaping of the dead quote. Uh, another quote that I found was really evocative was the description of Snow laughing up blood. Mm-hmm. Snow was spewing out his life. Yeah. It's just such a good way of putting that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just really made me feel like I was able to see that and could also understand the implications of what Snow means to Katniss with the word spew. Like, there's characterization mm-hmm. there, there's evocative storytelling and description. It's just like another really good sentence. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because in a sense, I mean, sure, Snow's old, but he clearly has cut his life shorter than it would have been through his lust for power and control. Mm -hmm. And it's really showing that, like, this is what he's done to his life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... From what I remember, that is the line that basically says Snow dies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not Snow 
dies. <laughs> it's <laughs> Snow spewed out his life, and we see him losing his life in that way. It's not taken from him, and that kind of goes into what you were saying. A lot of this is him doing this to himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an appropriate end for him, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another part that I thought was really well written was when Katniss is thinking about what to do when she's in the training center and she thinks, what I can do is give up. Mm-hmm. And I just love that writing because, you know, when we've been talking about agency so much throughout this series Mm. and this line is written still as an action that she's taking a choice that she's making something that she can do and it just really highlights that even giving up for Katniss here is a choice is something that she's attempting um and she's unable to completely do but she is still thinking of herself as someone who makes choices Mm -hmm. and even if she's completely confined and most abilities are taken away from her exactly yeah again like we've talked about a lot that is very contradictory to how snow talks about himself and when he makes decisions Mm -hmm. in the ballad of songbirds and snakes but i think it also contrasts with her at the beginning of Hunger Games, when she doesn't understand what PETA means when he says he wants to say himself. Yeah. Uh, Her mindset, she doesn't have to consciously connect her growth there. It's just happened. Um, So yeah, just really good characterization, I think, in that line. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that. A couple of short ones. I I noticed that uh, I just wanted to comment on Plutarch setting up a singing program. (laughs) That he talks to Katniss about, you know, he's right back to distracting the population. Uh, You know, he's the minister of communications or whatever, but apparently Mm -hmm. he's still making reality TV shows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how much of that is nationally mandated uh, and and produced, uh, I think, is an interesting question, but shows how Plutarch is going to mean is still going to be the type of. Elite and person in power that he has been. Yeah, totally. I was I was kind of wondering about that too. Like, if he's gotten the idea for this show from obviously Katniss mm. and seeing how those moments that they caught of her singing to Rue to uh, the Hanging Tree song mm-hmm. in earlier in this book. And seeing that those could be powerful, uh, having a powerful effect on an audience, uh, but also seeing the singing that happened at the wedding of Finnick and Annie, and maybe like thinking that these are things that can maybe connect people. Yeah. Um, and, and that now that most of his audience are people in the districts, mm-hmm. it'll cater to what their interests are and have been. Yeah. And. I I don't, it's obviously questionable because one, he's running it, Mm -hmm. and two, we don't know the parameters of these shows and, you know, all of that, but it's potentially a positive thing, you know, if people in the districts who, like, they've watched these games and the horrors of that, but they haven't watched any of the actual entertainment 
uh, outside of the game, you know, quote unquote entertainment in mm-hmm. terms of the games, but like actual entertainment outside of the games. I doubt they had any access to that. Yeah. That was just for capital people. And so to be able to have entertainment actually be entertainment and be able to even if all of the people in the districts don't have the the resources and everything as they're trying to rebuild to travel to each other's districts like mm-hmm. super quickly right away this is a way to start to get to know each other's districts and mm-hmm. like see some of their traditions and yeah if there's this show whether it's like a competition or something but people aren't killed at the end you know like it's just a very different way of doing something that yeah, I don't know. I think it could be a positive thing if it's done right. If it's done in a way that's not exploitative, if it's done in a way where people volunteer because they want to show themselves. They want to see themselves on screen, not in the games, you mm-hmm. know? Which, yeah, could be interesting. I mean, because we, we think back to Lucy Gray. She loved performing and to give a platform like that to people who do want to obviously Katniss would not want to (laughs) but I'm sure there's a lot of people who would yeah yeah that would be interesting yeah absolutely I didn't think about it that way you know and this is kind of a mini touch point but it, it kind of highlights my bias as an American who when I think about a state government producing entertainment, I automatically think, oh, that must be propaganda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you look at the BBC, you look at New Zealand and Australia and Mm -hmm. and countries around the world who do have broadcasting corporations and other kinds of of institutions that are just there for entertainment purposes, that can fall within the purview of a government's mandate in some societies that I just immediately went to, oh, well, they're using this for nefarious purposes, you know, without thinking about that. So, yeah, that's interesting. Another sad, striking moment for me was thinking about Hamish adding his 23 years of tributes to their memory book mm-hmm. and how that is the first time we've seen Hamish talk about the fact that he's had past tributes since maybe the first book when he talks about, oh, this year I have fighters. Even then it's just implied than, you know, compared to previous years. But here, him actually having to go through those 23 people and, you know, that must be such a journey and so powerful for him. And because we're seeing the story through Katniss's perspective, that's something that we just cannot really understand. But I think is... Just something I'm really glad that Collins included because it highlights again how much Hamish has gone through and how much the games have been so oppressive and tortuous for such a long time and how those scars haven't left. Um, yeah, I just I think it's a you know, especially when we think about how she ends the book thinking about how she's going to talk about the games at all to her children, how Hamish could talk to them about those previous tributes who mm-hmm. all died is its own similar kind of question of how could you even bring that up? How could you even communicate to that, that to people who've no idea who you're talking about uh, for at least half of them? You know, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah, I, I can just imagine how, how difficult that was. And, and I never remembered having read that in the past. So 
um, yeah, it's just something that, that really struck me through this read through. Mm. Yeah, it's it's good to see both him and Katniss who've been much more resistant to exploring their emotional dramas mm-hmm. than somebody like Peta and maybe even Johanna. Yeah, it's it's good to see that even though he hasn't changed any of his coping mechanisms and somehow he's raising geese when (laughs) (laughs) the alcohol runs out, uh, he, yeah, it has at least done a little bit, unchanged a little bit in, in regards to opening up about some of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I had one last one, which... Uh, was kind of me catching myself because we... On fire? Catching not fire? Not catching myself on fire, no. Uh, catching myself as as a reader who fell into the trap that we kind of call people out for with Hunger Games of, like, reading something as evidence of romance rather than evidence of trauma and politics and rebellion and, and all these other kinds of things that the, sh- that the stories are really about. Because mm-hmm. when Katniss first sees Peta and he's bringing those primrose trees and Katniss sees him kind of frown at her she becomes kind of self-conscious about her looks and on my first reading I was like oh she wants Peta to think that she looks good you know and I was like oh wait no she's self-conscious because it's the first person who she's seen in months outside of Greasy Say and she probably hasn't bathed in a long time mm-hmm. and it's just that she is so affected by everything that's happened to her and in many ways like I don't want to say broken but she has been so damaged by these things that she becomes aware of that in the first time in months probably mm-hmm. uh, well, and I think juxtaposed to the fact that she thinks he looks well you know yeah. he looks good yeah. he's a little bit thinner but like the look in his eyes is changed and you know exactly yeah, so, and, and even that, the first time I read through, I was all like, oh, look at her. She's, she's thinking that he looks good. She wants to look good, too, because he's seeing her. But it's like, no, it's not like she wants to look good for him because, it, you know, she likes him. It's, yeah, a, a much deeper connection to what they've been through and how PETA is showing a lot of growth from the low lows he's been in. And he certainly was in the past with her. And that makes her reflect on her own status in her journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, just, just you know, I, sometimes these read-throughs can help me to rethink <laughs> things as well uh, by stopping and, and kind of analyzing or, or stopping to, to think about things a little bit more deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> if we think about it, they've been in, around each other when they've all looked the worst they've looked, totally. right? With all the scabs after the poison fog mm-hmm. and Peta as he's dying from blood poisoning and covered in mud, you know. Uh, but this is another low for her with her hair completely matted. And and now it it isn't life and death scenarios. So they're not just in the wilderness. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's less... <laughs> quote unquote excuse for it. obviously she has a great reason for yeah you know why she hasn't been able to take care of herself but um it would feel less like she has a reason mm-hmm. yeah 
Well, let's go into our From Another Point of View segment, where we think about the events in these chapters in perspectives other than Katniss's. So what perspective did you bring? So I was thinking about Greasy Say's perspective, mm. because she's there twice a day and is witnessing someone who has been so strong be so debilitated. Yeah. And that must be hard to see because she saw Katniss as this 12-year-old kid coming into the hub. She probably saw her skills with the bow get better and better as she kept bringing in animals. And it's like, oh, the accuracy of her aim is increasing and things like that. And then now she's coming in with Gale and, and just being able to kind of watch that from this little kid who maybe she had seen around emaciated prior mm. to that and didn't know if she would survive but she did survive and she found a way to provide for her family mm -hmm. and then when prim was reaped and she volunteered and she saw her win her first games you know like she was it's not like she was friends with katniss but she clearly interacted with her mm -hmm. a lot so it was probably sad to see her in the games and then having hope that yes she could win you know and then she did win and everything that's happened since the games with her being the mockingjay and helping be the face of this rebellion and then seeing her kill coin and you know all of these things that have happened yeah. and now she just watches her being curled up on a couch unshowered for weeks on end not leaving the room except to use the bathroom and how that must make sense to her but also be sad because she's seen Katniss at the height of her strength and ability, and now she's at the lowest. And so I was thinking about her not exactly knowing how to interact with Katniss. Yeah. Like, she's going to come in and help do these things. Who knows? Maybe she was even asked by Hamish to do it. Uh, because Hamish isn't going to do any of these things for her. And just wanting to be there. You know, she's not talking to her much, but she's just being there, being present, being helpful, being of support. Sometimes bringing her grandkid and not wanting to push Katniss, but knowing that her situation is really unhealthy and giving the gentle suggestion of hunting and you know it's spring and you know mm -hmm. these things that her just trying to carefully navigate interacting with somebody who has been so broken down through the whole past several years and been so used and controlled and, and not wanting to try to force her to do anything but at the same time like wanting her to be able to get to a healthier place than she is now yeah unlike other people who maybe it would be a bigger shock to them to see katniss this way because they've only seen her as like the victorious mm. defiant symbol of the rebellion but 
you know, Greasy Say has seen her around all this time. So she's not a celebrity to Greasy Say. She's just a person in the community. And so, yeah, her trying to use some of what she knows of Katniss to interact with her in positive ways, even in this really sad circumstance. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you bring up a lot of, a lot of fascinating points I can't imagine what it's like for her to want to help, but also know, not know what to do mm-hmm. and how difficult that would be. But also to kind of recognize that at this point, Katniss doesn't have anyone else. Mm-hmm. Greasy Say is the closest thing that she has to a family. And while you were talking and while I was thinking about this, I kept thinking about how Katniss's inner monologue still refers to her as Greasy Say which is not her real name. <laughs> yeah. You know, Say prob- might, probably is or might be, but Greasy, I've always imagined, comes from the fact that she cooked. Mm-hmm. So I imagine her daughter, for example, doesn't call her Greasy Say mm-hmm. or Greasy Grandmother, you know. <laughs> <laughs> greasy Nan. <laughs> greasy Nan. Because, yeah, there are going to be other people who have closer relationships with her than just one that's based off of her job, essentially, you know, Mm -hmm. and one that, at least in our society, greasy is not something that is a positive aspect (laughs) of cooking. But then I also think about how many people does greasy say still have? And if she's bringing her granddaughter, are perhaps the parents dead? Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly know that a lot of families where yeah, the children have to go to work or have to go to these places because their parents, their grandparents, you know, there is no one else to take care of them. Um, And so they go to the workplaces. Yeah, I can just imagine that this is probably something that she's getting paid for or it has comfortable living either by being able to also eat off the food that she's cooking for Katniss that comes from Katniss's wealth or whatever it might be. But clearly she's able to live off of all what she's doing. But yeah, it just... uh, it, it makes me wonder to what extent Greasy Say is connected to anyone either. Mm-hmm. And whether Katniss is now one of the people that she also feels closest to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? Who's here from another point of view? PETA. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, I figured. Um, <laughs> this was kind of the culmination of the intention that I had months ago where I really wanted to track how PETA experiences getting to know Katniss again after his brainwashing. And Mm -hmm. as I knew, having read the books, falling in love with her again. And so, especially with the line where Katniss talks about how her and Peeta find each other again, I like that because it highlights how for both of them, even though there's clearly a lot of care there for one another, and there has been, it didn't automatically become, well, now we're together. But they still had work to do and, and, and processing to get to do to get there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely made me think through a lot of the moments in the chapter th- from his perspective. You know, he is the first person to get to her after she kills Coin, mm-hmm. And he immediately stops her from taking the Nightwalk, puts his hand on it, which just shows exactly how well he knows her. Yeah. And how quickly he is going to respond to her. I can just imagine him in that moment thinking to himself, this is what we do. We keep each other alive. What Katniss Mm. said to him when he wanted to kill himself. 
and that this is what he's trying to do then. And when Katniss says that he needs to let her go, he says he can't. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly not, I can't let you go right now. It's, I can't let you die. Because he feels the same at this point. That he, you know, whatever he can feel for her, which obviously is still difficult and cloudy, he still cares about her quite a bit. And he still needs her in a way that, with everything else that's happening, he can't get around. Mm-hmm. Then he talks about when he arrives at Katniss's in District 12, how he was released the day before. And so he again clearly immediately goes to District 12, immediately goes to Katniss. And we also see, I think, in that how much he has improved. Katniss kind of remarks on how well he looks, but the fact that, you know, he had to wait to get permission, but eventually he got that permission shows the extent to which he's grown, that he has been approved to go to Katniss and that he must have done a lot of hard work to overcome the hijacking. And that's not something that he'll ever completely be able to get rid of, but he at least has been able to assert control over himself in a way that he wasn't always able to during the infiltration. So yeah, I was just thinking about what it must be like for PETA, who has spent months working on himself to finally get permission to go to, back to District 12 and to go back to Katniss. And for the first thing that he wants to do, because Katniss is still asleep, is to do something meaningful for Prim. Mm-hmm. And to plant those primrose bushes. Yeah, because he's also hadn't had the opportunity to talk to Katniss about Prim yeah. since it happened. Exactly. But he still knows that this is something that she would appreciate. Mm-hmm. He doesn't ask for permission first because... He knows her well enough. He does kind of frown at how she's been keeping herself, like we were talking about. Not keeping herself? Not ke- Exactly. But I think that's out of concern, not out of judgment. You know, it's... Yeah. He's sad to see her in that state, and he wants to help. Yeah, just, it, it, it reminded me about how, for Peta, so often his first thought is for Katniss. You know, he arrives, and he immediately starts thinking about what Katniss might want. Obviously, he had a relationship with Prim as well, but he's putting those bushes around her home. Mm-hmm. And it's just such an important contrast between the reaction that we talked about with Gail last week, where <laughs> Gail was all thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about what Katniss needs and how Katniss is grieving. That's not the case for Peta. As soon as he can, he goes to Katniss and he is there for her first as they're sleeping again, but also Katniss doesn't, in her narration, say that Peta has been coming on to her, that Peta has been pining, that he has been doing anything. Nothing happens until she feels that hunger again, and mm-hmm. she wants to kiss him. And he's obviously already there, as Peta wants to be, <laughs> um, because he, he asks if she loves him, but yeah, I just, I can see Peta really, exactly as Katniss describes, being what's right for her, being someone who compliments her and who helps her and who thinks of her instead of more superficial or selfish things. Mm. So yeah, I just love PETA. He's great. (laughs) Um, I was also thinking about how apparently he pressures Katniss for children. Yeah, this is a big problem I have. I know. As we've discussed a number of times, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll discuss on the podcast, But one thing, thinking through his perspective here, that 
did come up was, I wonder if any of that has to do with his relationship with Annie and Finnick's child. I can imagine Peta wanting to have a relationship with that child because he feels like he owes Finnick, because Finnick died on the ladder and he was able to go up first. And because also of maybe he's friends with Annie, his right? relationship with Annie after they were both incarcerated, probably tortured, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, I just uh, imagine Peta wanting to, yeah, just have a relationship with that child. And it makes me wonder whether that had any effect on his own desire to have children. Yeah, possibly. I mean, there's also the more negative interpretation, <laughs> which I usually take, uh, or at least think about, which is... That if Peter's had this suicidal ideation since he was a kid and it's continually affected him and his decisions and his desires and I think sometimes people mistakenly think that because they feel depressed, because they feel empty, because they don't feel like they have a lot of reasons to live, like... A kid will give them that, Mm. which I think is misplaced and using another human being to try to Mm. help boost your own mental health, which I think is really uh, unfortunate and obviously doesn't work since there are plenty of parents that kill themselves, you Mm. know, or plenty of parents, even if they don't kill themselves, that their depression still is there mm-hmm. and or their suicidal ideation is still there even if they don't act on it that is going to negatively impact the child yeah. uh, so i i could imagine that being one of his reasons is like oh i don't have any family left part of my purpose even between his first games and second games was still going to see his family and baking Mm -hmm. and doing these things and like feeling like he has wants to do that with someone or for someone you know but that would just be about him so yeah i could kind of imagine that and yeah i don't know it just it leaves me with very bad taste in my mouth i'm like peter what are you doing like if the only reason she didn't want to birth children was because she was afraid that the Hunger Games would happen again. Mm-hmm. Like, if that was literally the only reason, I could see him trying to convince her, like, no, things have changed. They're not just going to go back to how they were. Like, if this is something yeah. that you would want, then why don't we just do this? Because that is probably mostly an irrational fear, even though it's understandable fear. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say any of that. So, and like we do have a <laughs> world's worth of history of people without uteruses requiring people with uteruses to bear them children. Yeah. And that's just a very disturbing thing, even among people who are supposed feminists and stuff like that. It's like, no, people without uteruses, like, I don't know. I just personally feel like they shouldn't want something of people with uteruses you know like they shouldn't want them to bring them something because it puts their own body at risk it puts Mm -hmm. their mental health at risk like people have postpartum depression postpartum psychosis people gain long-term health consequences people die obviously throughout these processes and people 
sometimes they just don't want this for their life. And putting that pressure on people is just really disgusting in my view and is like a different sort of exploitation of somebody's body and wanting to use them and their body for your own desires, which I don't appreciate <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah, this, uh, the epilogue <laughs> is, is difficult for me yeah. because in general, we don't see Peter pressuring Katniss for things. In general, we see him supporting her but then we do have that oh i'm gonna make this announcement about though she has a baby and like using that without her giving her consent for it so maybe we do have a precedent for him overriding her consent in certain scenarios uh, yeah which is problematic yeah and i think it does certainly lean into things that are problematic but have been normalized for some reason mm-hmm. like childbirth like marriage which he also throws out that they got married you know <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah it, it definitely feels very unpita like for him to not only pressure her but to pressure her for years i think Peta would if she said no and they had some discussions about it that he would then say okay he wouldn't come back years later and be like well, what now? about now? Like, you know, yeah. yeah. Like, just take the no. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You should be able to have a meaningful life without that. It's, it's like, such a, I don't know, heteronormative sort of paradigm that, mm-hmm. like, oh, we only have a meaningful life if we bear children and have a nuclear family, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just, it's a frustrating place for me to end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, have an, and I have another thing in my touch points, which will be our next section. But before I go to there, another thing that I think is interesting, too, with him not only knowing Katniss to cover the Nightlock pill, mm-hmm. but I think also maybe it being further evidence of his own history with suicidal ideation because maybe he thought, this is what I would do yeah. in this circumstance. I don't want to live. I've kept not wanting to live. She probably doesn't want to either. Uh, so I need to stop this now because he reacted so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I and, think and it's clear that it's something he's thought about himself. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine him also knowing that Katniss voted in favor of continuing the games, thinking that she was out of sorts in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah, I think that this kind of exercise is particularly illustrative for, for Peta in that scene. Mm-hmm. And maybe it, it shows that before he was given the Nightlock capsule by Gale, maybe it shows that he had that kind of on loop thinking about, mm. can I take somebody's? Can I get to it so I can kill myself so I don't yeah. hurt anyone else? And, you know. Hyper-focused on where they're located. Exactly. Yeah. So that he knew automatically, like, to go for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, with that, we should probably head into those touch points. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's chat about those. What what touch points did you want to talk about? So yeah, besides the one about PETA and the pressuring to have babies, and you know how that corresponds to what people actually do in our worlds, I was also thinking about another thing that I have trouble with in the epilogue is that. I feel like 
where the Hunger Games books up until this point, even though obviously it's a different world, it's a different society, there are so many places that like correspond to ours, yeah. you know? And here I feel like the epilogue does correspond to ours, but not in terms of like the messaging of the book, mm. if that makes sense, because I think that there as we pointed out throughout our read through, there's a strong anti-capitalist, anti-exploitation message. Mm -hmm. So the end just, uh, it, it doesn't really work to correspond to our world because in Panem, they have a population issue. Yeah. So them having biological children is not, the same as what it is in our worlds and like and them just like kind of going on with life and trying to find happiness like it's not the same as our worlds uh, because what we have is not a population issue what we have is a poverty issue an exploitation issue mm -hmm. a public health issue a pollution issue a refugee issue these are the issues that our society has, and all of those things are exacerbated by population growth and consumerism, like where those things meet. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's hard because it's like what's maybe some of the answer to their problems is not what's the answer to our problems. Right. And so there's just like a big disconnect for me there. Because particularly in the most developed countries in the world, creating new people is going to increase a family's carbon footprint. It's going to increase plastic usage and landfill additions from diapers to toys to food containers, etc. You know, and the U.S. only recycles about 9% of plastic Europe is better, but it's still 42%, which means over half, and in the U.S., over 90% of plastic ends up in landfills or is shipped to more impoverished countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's not just, like, dumped in the ocean, right? And, like, other countries are forced to deal with that, and it's seriously affecting their health. And... The United States emits, for example, two times the amount of greenhouse gases as India, even though the U.S. has one-third the population size of India. Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult because it's like, it's really, really difficult to live as close to zero waste as you possibly can, mm -hmm. right? And when we are more stressed out in our lives <laughs> and particularly parents are, are tired and want their kids to have happy lives. Like it's basically impossible to be as zero waste as possible unless you're rich and you have a paid staff to do these things and garden for you and do all of this. Like, I, you know, as somebody who cares about this stuff, but doesn't have the energy to do it, I just can't. I will buy that thing of hummus, even though it comes in plastic and it's bad. And I know it, but like most of the time I do not have the energy to make the hummus myself right. from scratch and to grow the chickpeas to like yeah there's there's so many levels of 
production and manufacturing and that goes into consumption that society has moved the average person as far away from as possible. Absolutely. But, and it's not only people with children. It's also people who are, like, trying to succeed in this capitalist... Hellscape? <laughs> hellscape of career hierarchy. Mm. The more stressed out you are with a demanding job or trying to climb that corporate ladder, the less time you have and the less energy you have to try to make more thoughtful, ethical decisions, you mm-hmm. know? And everything is so connected, which I think throughout this podcast, we've been trying to highlight, even as we've looked at different districts representing different areas of the world and where, where we are importing things from. When we think about food, the, the more mouths to feed, who is planting that food? Who is harvesting that food? Uh, whose labor is going into it? Who is affected by the pesticides and the herbicides on the food? You mm-hmm. know, also like clothing, buying more clothes for ourselves or for other people. It's going to be made in sweatshops in Asia. If a shirt's $20 or even $50, of the time, that labor for that $20 shirt was exploitative because you have the production of the material, whether that's cotton that's planted and grown or like processing for synthetics, plus the shipping to go to where it is sewn. So the labor that goes into that, plus the shipping to the stores. Uh, And then there's going to be paid staff at that stores to sell things to people or to package it again to ship it to people's doors, Mm -hmm. you know, plus the companies are making a profit. So if there's a shirt that's $20, like there is no way for that to happen without labor exploitation and sweatshops and that's going to be happening to people in other countries who don't have the access to other work you know i I know that there's like been a lot of kind of fear-mongering recently that's come out with studies that people have done or with articles that are like people aren't having as many kids as they used to be like (laughs) oh no what's gonna happen society is gonna collapse unless people do and it's like what are you talking about we have never had as many people as we currently have in human history, and it didn't collapse before. It's basically just people showing no imagination, like District 13. Because if you actually tax the rich, you don't really have to worry about a slightly smaller workforce. And then people losing Medicare benefits, like, you don't need to worry about that if you tax the billionaires, if you spend less money on militaries you know like there's so much money either not gained through tax evasion or used for terrible things like weaponry that it's only in the current unequal capitalist system that people really need to be concerned about these things but it's still ridiculous because it's completely ignoring everything else (laughs) that's involved like it's ignoring the fact that the more people we have contributing to pollution, the things that are really going to make it so that humans can't survive are the fact that currently biodiversity has decreased by 70%, according mm. to the United Nations. Like 70%. That is terrifying, you know? That's 
something that will kill us. Well, and that's the thing, is that those conversations are not global in scale. Mm -hmm. They're always nationalist in focus. Mm -hmm. It's saying, we need to have more children because they're having more children. (laughs) And if they're having more children, that means that they're going to have more workers, which we need to have more workers. And if we're going to maintain whatever economic military supremacy, we need grunts, you know, to, to be raised to be able to do that. And... Absolutely, which is like just going back to ancient Rome. Y'all need to have children because we need soldiers and we need workers to maintain our empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just says that like nothing's really changed. Yeah. <laughs> it's continuing the ludicrous capitalist and consumeristic practices that we are doing now that pollute the world and put microplastics in our bodies. That's what's going to kill the plant, animal, and human life. And pandemics that increase with population density increases. That's what's going to kill humans. It's antibiotic-resistant bacteria that will kill humans, not people having less children. And all of this isn't to like shame people who have already had biological kids. If you've got kids, like, obviously love them, (laughs) raise them to try to be... You're not advocating for wholesale slaughter of (laughs) children? (laughs) I wasn't thinking wholesale. I was thinking just 24 once a year in ritualistic combat. Uh, I thought you were going to say you were thinking retail slaughter, you know. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that would be great. But, you know, obviously, if you have kids, like... Try to raise them as compassionate and conscientious and engaged as you can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, members of this, like, world that we all live in. For those of us who haven't created new people, I don't know, it's just something I think that we have to consider that in society never seems to be talked about. And people get really offended when people do try to start conversations about it. But, yeah, it's just uh, our consumer practices how we're living you know we have to think about it because we can't just continue on with business as usual you know uh which Mm -hmm. yeah pun intended (laughs) like it's capitalism which will destroy us all and will continue the status quo that is exploitative that is just a continuation of imperialism but through the guise of globalization Mm -hmm. and and global markets and we we have to do something about that we have to change something about that and obviously politically it'd be great if we put limits on businesses but it hasn't happened and we obviously still need to continue to try to do that but it's also when we're consumers consumers do have some amount of power if we choose to utilize it mm-hmm. so yeah I- I don't know. It's just like with Katniss's statement in this chapter about something is significantly wrong with a creature that sacrifices its children's lives to settle its differences. There's also something seriously wrong with a society that sacrifices brown and black children and adults' lives so that their own privileged children will live happier lives. It's difficult for me at the end of this because I feel like the whole book is anti-inequality and anti-capitalist and anti-exploitation, but the conclusion of the book isn't really that, and I guess that's still where a lot of people land. So maybe Touchpoint was 
this is where the majority of the world lands even if they think about these issues that they still kind of just continue on doing what humans have done Mm -hmm. for human history but i think that we need to think more creatively if we actually want to change things so Mm -hmm. i I don't know it's just i would have liked collins to kind of dream up something a bit more new a bit more original to find hope and change than just kind of what most books do and what what happens most of the time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, really difficult because the books as a whole have been so much about children and about the sacrifice of children. Mm -hmm. So if it wants to revisit that, I can understand the impetus to have it be that they have children that are like a sense of hope or a symbol of hope and you know they're free of the hunger games but we also get a page and a half of the epilogue and so we don't know what that society actually looks like and mm-hmm. just because there's no hunger games doesn't mean there's no inequality yeah you know what what are Katniss and Peeta doing living high off of their winnings from earlier like you know maybe he's becomes a baker but like we don't know those things either so are they just yeah exploitative capitalists who are living (laughs) off the work of others you know we we don't really know enough to have a nuanced picture of the new world and how is this society going to be any different than the other one besides the fact that there's no games exactly it's a nice idea that oh now they're making medicines instead of mining coal but Are those medicines being distributed equally? Are they adding plastics into the environment? Mm -hmm. Are they, you know, like, there's still, it's, it's too simplistic. Yeah, because... It's complicated. I think the other element of the series is Katniss's defiance of institutions that are oppressive. Mm -hmm. And her final act is not in defiance of anything. Her final act is a compromise to, apparently, PETA's desire to have children, even though it causes her physical and mental trauma, even though the world is still oppressive, you know, she's not defying, she is then settling and Mm -hmm. conforming. And I think that for this series as a kind of political message, it feels itself there too. Mm -hmm. I just think that when we look at the complexity of the world... And even the complexity of the world of Penem, it just seems like way too easy of an answer. Yeah, absolutely. All was well. <laughs> well, but Epilogue's I, do, I, do, I right. do love that it shows that, no, she still does have yeah, totally. trauma. It's not just gone. She still does worry about these things. She still has bad days. She still has to continue to do this practice that is tedious for her. Because she is never just going to, quote unquote, recover from everything that she's been through, which I do really appreciate. It doesn't just end happy, but I feel like it's trying to end happier in a way than, I guess, makes sense to me. Yeah. But what about you? Now that I'm done with my tirade, but also I will say that... (laughs) If this is depressing to you, <laughs> like it is to me, we are going to be putting together just a little document of resources of just like things that we kind of do or use. Like 
anything from bamboo toilet paper to mm. metal boba straws to fair trade underwear and things like that that we do utilize to try to mitigate our uh, American oppression <laughs> as much as we can for the globe. So that all of you, you know, like we already do these things, so uh, we'll we'll share them too. So yeah. I'll, I'll share that after or after the, our final episode. Um, and we hope that you share with us as well if you mm-hmm. have other things that you do. Absolutely, I always love to learn about new things that for things that we do have to buy. You yeah. know, what what are the ways that we can do it more ethically? Exactly. But yeah, what about you? What touch points do you have? Yeah, so I, I had a couple I wanted to talk about. One was Katniss. Things about how she refuses to be brainwashed into using weapons again. <laughs> and I just love that line because, for one, the use of brainwashed, I think, is important because society does brainwash us into our views on weapons and weaponry. And certainly in the United States, that brainwashing is powerful. You know, the Second Amendment is probably the amendment that more people can name than any other within yeah. our Constitution. No one knows what the Seventh Amendment does, but Do we all know what the Second know Amendment what the does. First one is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that becomes propaganda, that becomes these cultural ideals that are hard to resist, uh, both individually and interpersonally. And so, not only, I think, is it great that she uses that term, but I like how this also shows a big change for Katniss. She thinks that she won't use weapons again for any cause. And part of that is that she's disillusioned that there are causes worth that. Mm -hmm. But it's also tied to her depression. But I think it's also tied to just a change in Katniss, that she's realized that violence begets violence, that violence can be justified but isn't always the right thing to do. And I wouldn't necessarily say that she's a pacifist, but I think by the end of the book, certainly by this point, she no longer believes that her life is necessarily more important than others and is worth killing to protect. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that doesn't come naturally to people. People naturally do think that their life is worth killing others to protect, right? The idea of killing in self-defense and things like that. You know, I can see the justification behind that, that if someone is making you choose between your life and theirs, and they're the one who's making you make that choice, that certainly reflects negatively on them. Hmm? And so why would you want to give them that, especially because we tend to be pretty self-centered as well as a survival mechanism, Mm -hmm. you know? So it it makes sense, but I, I would hope that a strong, deep, and thoughtful examination of what that leads to and what that entails would make people be more wary, particularly if they've gone through the experiences that Katniss has of in the games and then in war, having to live through decisions that place her own life in competition with others and being told that she has to take lives in order to save her own. And that she comes out with a belief that that's not worth it, that doing violence against others, even to save herself, is not a good thing, I think is a major transformation. 
and one that I'd, I would hope more people in our society <laughs> would go through. And, and I think that, that that is a difficult thing. It's something that I have struggled with myself. You know, when, when we first met, you were a pacifist and I wasn't, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think I've moved much, much further towards pacifism. I probably still wouldn't be as strongly pacifistic as you are, but all of that is journeys. And, and yeah, having to separate yourself from ideas of quote-unquote self-defense, whether that's self-defense of your actual bodily person or your way of life or even possibly the defense of others, mm. you know, those become hard questions to, to answer. And I just appreciate that Katniss ends the book not just with meditations on hope and resistance and all these other kinds of things, but also on violence itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that because it's, it's so true. There is just this belief that has been drilled into our minds that the use of weapons is essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was one. The other one that I wanted to, to talk about was when Plutarch mentions that people have a short memory and maybe they could prepare for a future war, but at that point they were in this happy, peaceful stage post that war. But, you know, he, he sees the possibility of a war in the future as not impossible. Mm-hmm. And this idea of kind of people having a short memory, it, it makes me think about just the, the kind of concept of learning from history, which as a history professor, <laughs> I think about a lot. And I actually have kind of conflicting views on it. In part, this comes from the fact that one of the things that I often challenge my students most with is when they say things like history repeats itself because history doesn't repeat itself because <laughs> things change and understanding how things occurred within their historical context is important. Actually, one of my favorite quotes, which actually doing some research today made me realize a little bit more information on is history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Hmm. Uh, it's been popularly attributed to Mark Twain, but he almost certainly did not say it. Um, he died in 1910, and the first time anyone could find any sources that said that he said it is 1970. So, probably not him. Uh, it's actually more likely that a writer named Theodore Rake uh, first said something of that ilk. But actually, in my research on this, I found Mark Twain's original quote that's most like this, which I maybe like even better, even though it's not as kind of catchy, mm. uh, where he says, history never repeats itself, but the kaleidoscopic combinations of the pictured present often seem to be constructed out of the broken fragments of antique legends. Hmm. I like that because it, it, it deals with meaning making mm -hmm. when we talk about history. And, and complexity. Exactly. I think that history is not necessarily something that we need to to learn lessons from the way that it often is shown as you know if you if you don't learn your history you're doomed to repeat it and, and mm -hmm. idioms like that for one i don't think that we actually do look to history to learn lessons as a society i, I just don't think that we do that what i think that we use history for often is narratives and building narratives that help us to make sense of the world i think that that can be important but it also can be an issue when, when you have a narrative first focus. I don't exactly know where I stand in the concept of, of kind of learning from history. Obviously, I'd like us to learn from history, but I just don't think that that's how society 
operates because historical thought is so often produced in ways that are far away from deep thinking and deep analysis and much more about kind of very simplistic takeaways that people often have about whatever history they're studying. So yeah, I just have been sitting with this kind of concept of people having short memories and with history rhyming. Yeah, yeah, that's, that is really interesting. Yeah, as problematic as Plutarch can be, I find his little <laughs> uh, monologue there one of the most interesting things in the book because mm. I do find it very true <laughs> that I wrote it down because it was just so great. She was like, are you preparing for another war? And he's like, oh, not now. We're in that sweet period where everyone agrees that our recent horrors should never be repeated. But collective thinking is usually short-lived. We're fickle, stupid beings with poor memories and a great gift for self-destruction. And yeah, I just... (laughs) I feel like he... Yeah, does point out this problem that we would like to think that oh because both snow and now coin have been taken out of power ultimately something new and better will arise and then it'll just be better for from here on out which is yeah just kind of a naive perspective Mm -hmm. because uh history doesn't really seem to go that way (laughs) absolutely Yeah, there's often this idea that history has been this kind of upward diagonal line that as time passes, humanity quote-unquote progresses. And that that's unbroken and kind of just moves forward. And that's just not the case Mm -hmm. in a long-term or short-term look because things go backwards and forwards and things are complicated and get better in some ways, but that often comes to the exploitation of other things. And so, yeah, there you cannot just say that things are better now or that things have progressed in certain ways. Yeah, and, and going on with your discussion about narratives, mm-hmm. right? For example, the U.S. ended slavery in 1865. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first of all, that's not really the case. And that's why Juneteenth is celebrated and things like that. But then... We have to look at, well, now there's modern-day slavery with the trafficking of humans. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at mass incarceration of people Mm -hmm. and the fact that even according to our 13th Amendment, you can still have slavery, basically, as long as somebody is incarcerated. Yeah, which was explicitly (laughs) and purposefully included Mm -hmm. in that language. Yeah, so it's just like, narratively, we can say, ah... On the books, we ended slavery, but, like, first of all, we didn't. And now you can, people can create the narratives that we are a better society because we ended the transatlantic slave trade and the handing down of people as property. But the prison industrial complex, it tells a very different story. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like we have digressed into both of our just yeah, basically. our interests and feelings about things rather than what the, the books are actually saying. At so least it's long. the end of the, it's the last episode of the podcast. <laughs> We've been holding on to this for so long. I mean, it's not the last episode. We'll, we'll talk more about the book actually <laughs> next episode. But why don't we move into our 
wonderments. Sure. What are your wonderments? So I'm really wondering what actually happened in her trial. Mm. Did Peta and Gail and Hamish and other victors testify on her behalf? Mm-hmm. Or were they not allowed to because of their connection to her? What sort of evidence is brought up? You know, it's talked about that Dr. Aurelius basically painted this picture of her that she was so unstable and, you know. Right. Would Gail have said anything similar, uh, yeah. you know? <laughs> no. Yeah, like, did they use capital lawyers? Was mm. this still something that was done via the District 13 trial methods? Like, I have no idea, but I would really like to know. I'd also love to know if the parachute conspiracy came out mm-hmm. in, in that process. Since Gail knew that she mm-hmm. was wondering about that, and he had asked Beatty, so several of these people knew about this is a possibility, and so did this come out? How would that affect what people thought of District 13 or yeah. the the government as a whole and all of that? So, yeah, I just would love to know. I also am really wondering about what Johanna's doing mm. in the new Pan Am, what Effie is doing in the new Pan Am. I, I'm thinking of Effie procuring tapes of the previous games so that they could study up on them for the quarter quell, you know? Does she try to still help them and send them photographs of people or send them things from their book, you know? Mm. I'd just be very interested. Or does she visit them uh, and wanted to stay and help when they had a baby or oh, something and they yeah. don't want that because it's Effie? Yeah. And, you know, or would she not want that because she's like, oh, that's too much work. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just very interested in what they're doing and and what especially people are doing that they're very livelihoods or their existence was so defined by the games mm-hmm. now that the games are not there anymore yeah yeah what about you what are your wonderments similar to yours on the trial i wonder how the election went mm-hmm. uh when paler is elected you know how were the rules of that election decided like who the candidates would be who could vote all of those kinds of questions, you know, obviously a district eight person was elected. Was that because the districts just had a ton of people voting compared to District 13? You know, what mm-hmm. you know, what, what was going on there, I think, uh, is very interesting. And then linguistically, uh, I'm wondering how Katniss knows the term cold turkey, <laughs> which she uses to talk about how she stops taking Morphling. <laughs> and totally. starts taking and starts having withdrawals effects. How does a term like that last until Panem? And obviously, they have substances like morphling that people can get addicted to. But are there ideas of addiction in District Twelve that they still talk about quitting cold turkey? And what is Katniss's relationship with those conversations? And like all of these kinds of discussions, did she learn this from Hamish? Like mm-hmm. just how, how language I think, and especially a, a very unique term like cold turkey comes about and then stays and becomes powerful in a language, I just think is, is really interesting. Yeah. I, I want to know the etymology for Pan Am of cold turkey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Although there's a term like Hold your horses. I still know about it, even though how long has it been since we were using horses and carriages or whatever to get around? Like, a while. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get into our intentions. What 
are you intending after this conversation and this chapter? Yeah, you know, I was thinking a lot about Katniss talking about like kind of going through the motions Mm. that she had discussed with Dr. Aurelius. And then as she was doing that, then she did have an idea of something that she wanted to do. And then paper arrived the next day for her to actually start working on this book. And yeah, I guess I was just thinking about her taking a shower for the first time in weeks and weeks that that is a feat mm-hmm. for someone who's been through what she's been through. And and I remember seeing a like a little enamel pin from an Etsy artist that was something like, I got out of bed today and mm-hmm. it looks like a little award, you know, because it's like sometimes for us, that's a feat for what we've been through. And so, yeah, just trying to remember that Yes, obviously live as compassionately as we can, live as ethically as we can, but it's okay to not necessarily do great things because of what we've been through. Mm. I I can't go be a disability advocate because I don't have the capability to do that um, with where I'm at in my life, my body and my mental health and, you know, all of the things. So, yeah, sometimes just getting out of bed or just taking a shower or whatever it is, is, um, is, I, I don't want to use the word a win because it's not a competition, but is, um, accomplishment still sounds kind of like that. So I don't know. (laughs) It's, it's a, it's a difficult hurdle to jump and that can be acknowledged too. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What about you? I think my intention is to be more like Katniss, the choice to kill coin. I don't want to kill people, obviously. I'm not saying like that. But to do what you think is right, regardless of the costs and regardless of what people think. Mm. To have a life that is defined by your own agency in the ways that you can utilize it. I think that when I think about my own agency and my own choices, I'm obviously very privileged in many ways, but I also feel like I probably hamper myself because I'm worried about effects that I have less control over or reactions that I have less control over. And uh, one thing about Katniss, one thing that is special about Katniss is that she doesn't let those kinds of things bother her. And she is determined. And so I think that for her to begin and end this story with these hard choices where she's in many ways sacrificing everything that she can, she has um, for to do what's right, I think is uh, it's just really inspiring and something that I would like to, to try to emulate more in my own life. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up this final chapter discussion. For Mockingjay. We promise the final episode will be less tirades and less (laughs) of a bummer. Yes. So so what are we doing next week? (laughs) Next week is just going to be, yeah, our conclusion to this whole read-through to the book Mockingjay, looking at narrative threads and a particular character that stood out to us in this book and asking each other compelling questions and things like that. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. 
Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can access the in-person, digital, not actually in-person, live Zoom meeting that we'll be having with our patrons. Yeah, and we're putting out our trivia for Mockingjay this coming week, as well as we'll have our fun Radaptation, Badaptation, Mockingjay Part 2 movie review. Yeah, and those are for patrons only, so you gotta join up. <laughs> we want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.